It's been over a year. We know because we checked. It's been over a year since the last Lost episode. For those of you who are new around here, we used to do a Lost episode about once every three months or so. Generally, they presented an accumulation of things that had been cut out of the preceding episodes for reasons of time or relevancy. There were things we'd discovered along the way while researching an episode's main topic that were interesting, but just didn't fit once we actually came to write the episode. So they ended up on the cutting room floor. Rather than let these interesting bits just disappear, we'd assemble them into a lost episode and release it into the wild. Anyway, last August, we assembled and aired Lost Episode 13. Since then, a number of changes occurred, one of which was the creation of a special bonus episode for our patrons. Called Footnotes 2, it made sense to use what was formerly reserved for Lost Episodes and release it as a monthly extra related to one of the previous month's episodes instead. It's a fun 7-10 minute extra as a way of saying thanks to our patrons. But that doesn't mean there aren't still a lot of things sitting around unused that we've collected for various reasons. Some of them are things we came across while researching other topics that were too good to ignore. It's always hard to pass those by because they're just so promising. But they often don't connect up to what we are currently working on, even as a bonus episode. Other items come to us from listener suggestions. Every once in a while, we get stuck for topics, and so we turn to our patrons on the GM Word of the Week Discord server and solicit suggestions from them, and, occasionally, people from our wider audience send in little requests for words they'd like to hear more about. We dutifully file these requests and suggestions away into our working list of research topics. As we prepare to research and write new episodes, we go over the list to see what is interesting and what provides enough information and connections to make a full episode. And while interesting, sometimes these suggestions just don't have enough going for them to get an entire show out of them. So we let them stand and accumulate in the hopes that they will grow as time goes by. Sometimes they do, but sometimes they don't, and we end up with words on the research list that have taken up residency and are now asking for tenure. And then, there are the words and topics we come across ourselves from some totally other thing we're doing that we get curious about. Passing mentions in books we read, or major details and stuff we've been watching that jump out at us as being a thing we don't know much about right off the bat. You know the sort of thing. You've been reading a book and suddenly a word jumps out at you that you've seen for years and thought you understood, but it suddenly dawns on you that you really have very little idea what it's really all about. The same thing happens on TV or in the movies. A thing you had totally taken for granted as being understood suddenly reveals itself in a fleeting image or a line of dialogue to have far more interesting things going on that you barely had any inkling about. Onto the list this goes as well, in the hope that once their full majesty is revealed, they'll prove interesting enough to make a show about. Sadly, by and large they don't. There's always a collection of topics we have high hopes for here at GM Word of the Week Studios, but frequently they just don't pan out. From any group of 10 topics, the most we can hope to sift out into full-fledged episodes are one or two really good nuggets. The rest just wait for their moment to shine, a moment which might never come unless we do what we're doing right now. Collect them up and string them together into another lost episode. This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback.
One of the first, and perhaps oddest, things we've come across in our research happened while we were looking into the Swedish military as part of our episode on unicorns. We wanted to include it then, but there just wasn't any way to make it fit properly. Still, it's an amazing fact and one that deserves to be known. And it is this. During the 17th century, Sweden's Charles XI experimented with moose cavalry. Immediately, you can see why we'd want to include that somewhere. Anywhere, really. Especially given the internet's weird propensity to be endlessly fascinated with things like dwarven bear cavalry. For reasons why dwarven bear cavalry doesn't work and makes zero sense, you can see more on the Angry GM's website. But for reasons why Sweden never fielded moose cavalry, it doesn't take much work to realize the problems. For one thing, as big as moose are, and as impressive and intimidating as their antlers may be, they are essentially one big mass atop a set of spindly legs. A bull moose can weigh as much as a thousand pounds or more, with the majority of its weight near the top of its six-foot-tall-at-the-shoulder height. This makes them not only awkward, but a tremendous problem when one decides to fall over. That's a lot of potential energy coming down all at once. There were other arguments against mounted moose troops as well. Although eyed as a horse replacement because horses were very hard to get in Sweden at the time, it turned out that moose were ill-suited to being domesticated. They're a usually solitary animal, living by themselves rather than in herds, and they tend to be very aggressive about defending their territory whenever another moose encroaches on it. But they also tend not to want to charge into a pitched battle because they don't much like the sound of gunfire, which spooked the moose, causing them to run away. Which is sort of inconvenient if you're trying to fight a war. And when moose turned out to be susceptible to disease and hard to feed, because they're foragers rather than grazers and didn't normally eat fodder in pastures like horses do, that was pretty much the end of that idea. But that didn't stop the April 2010 Russian edition of Popular Mechanics magazine from running a story about how the Winter War of 1939 and 1940 was delayed while Russian troops waited for their moose units to leave the mating season in order to enter the war. The moose were supposedly equipped with machine guns strapped to their antlers and were capable of distinguishing spoken Russian and Finnish in order to tell the troops apart. It was, of course, an April Fool's prank. But that hasn't prevented any number of people both on and off the internet from insisting it was all true. One of our erstwhile listeners sent us a request quite a while ago for an episode explaining the word hootenanny, so we duly wrote it down on our list of things to research. But when it came time to research it, there just wasn't much there to work with, so we set it aside to see if it accrued any additional information as we worked on other topics. Oddly, it didn't. Which is a shame, because it's a pretty interesting word whose meaning has changed over time. Originally, it was in the same group of words as whatchamacallit, thingamajig, doohickey, and thingamabob. Basically, a placeholder name for a thing which you knew had a name, but you couldn't recall. Like, hey, hand me that hootenanny over there so I can put this doohickey back together. It was probably originally an Appalachian word that first got into print about 1929 or so. 
However, these days it has taken on an entirely different, more widespread meaning, which might be largely thanks to the American Broadcasting Company in the 60s. See, starting in Seattle in the 30s, Hootenanny was being used to refer to what amounted to folk music gigs played around the city in support of the New Deal Political Club, which had just been established there. As a Democrat out of Washington State, Hugh DeLacy was in support of Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal politics at the time, and through several musical fundraisers under the Hootenanny name to advance the cause. Musicians Pete Seeger and Woody Guthrie heard the term and began using it to refer to any gathering of folk musicians over the next few decades. In 1962, when producers for ABC Television were looking around for a name for the new college campus-based folk music showcase program, they landed on the term Hootenanny as best reflecting the theater in the round-style presentation in which members of the audience frequently sang along with the performers. Which was kind of odd, because artists like Pete Seeger were specifically not invited to perform on Hootenanny due to the perception among the producers that they were too left-wing. Seeger had been called before the House Un-American Activities Committee, which was supposedly set up to root out communism and fascism in America wherever it might be found. Seeger refused to discuss his political affiliations with the committee and was convicted of contempt in 1955, a conviction which was later overturned on appeal in 1962. When word got out that certain folk artists were blacklisted from appearing on Hootenanny, other artists boycotted the show in protest. Among them were Joan Baez, Bob Dylan, Peter, Paul, and Mary, and the Kingston Trio. Naturally, all this made the news, and even though Hootenanny the TV show only ran for three seasons, it permanently imprinted the word in the American consciousness and associated it with the sort of open mic folk music with audience participation that the program was famous for. But the reason Hootenanny only ran for three seasons had nothing to do with the controversy. Rather, by the end of the third season, plans for a fourth season were scrapped thanks to the American public losing almost all interest in folk music in favor of the music coming from what would come to be called the British Invasion. We don't think we've made a great secret of the fact that we are book lovers and therefore read quite a few of them. We read a variety of genres, both fictional and non, romance accepted. And as such, we've hit upon many of the classics and pseudo-classics of the modern era. Among them, Agatha Christie and her famous detectives Miss Marple and Hercule Perrault. One thing stuck out to us about her writing, though. Given that they are mysteries, and murder almost always features, it's remarkable how many times the weapon of choice for the crime is poison. And even more remarkable that the poison in question is so often arsenic. We'd noticed it in other venues as well. If someone is getting poisoned in a Perry Mason episode, the culprit is often arsenic. It was commonly used as a rat poison, and it was unaccountably almost always left laying around in handy reach of anyone who might need it for any reason at all. Also, the coroner would need to be specifically instructed to check for it if the victim's manner of death was in question and you were in the last 15 minutes of an episode and it was time for the surprise ending. Anyway, we begin to wonder why arsenic was so popular, especially with Agatha Christie, so we poked around a bit in hopes of finding lots of interesting stuff from which to make an episode. Our first major discovery about arsenic 
is that no one dies of arsenic poisoning in movies and books. Now, before you run out and grab great handfuls of pure arsenic and start eating it up in some ill-advised attempt to impress folks, don't do that. You will be poisoned and quite probably die. But it is well worth knowing that some animals, including rats, hamsters, goats, and chickens, require trace amounts of pure arsenic in their diets to actually live. Now, the important and relevant part of what we said is in books and movies. Now, you've probably seen a scene that goes something like this. A very bad person wants to kill someone who may or may not deserve it. So they sneak around until they can slip a few grains of arsenic into whatever the victim is drinking or eating at the moment. They uncork a little vial, sprinkle in the little white grains, and wait. The victim comes along and takes some of whatever has been altered. Yum, yum, yum. They hardly even notice the difference. For a few moments, they go on talking and carrying on, just as if nothing had happened. And then suddenly, they clutch at their throat. Maybe they cough a bit. Then there's usually a groan. A strangulated accusation half escapes their lips. They clutch their belly, and then they fall to the ground. Stone dead which is not any of the symptoms of arsenic poisoning. But the reason it crops up so much in Agatha Christie novels and therefore became popular with other would-be mystery writers was that Christie had a history with a chemical. See, during the two world wars, Christie served as a chemist's assistant, which meant she got to be quite familiar with various chemicals and concoctions, not the least of which was arsenic. Except the arsenic she got familiar with wasn't the same thing as pure arsenic. What she knew was arsenic trioxide, and it is far more potent than regular arsenic when it comes to poisoning people. You can see why they do it different on TV and in books, though. First off, real, severe arsenic poisoning is messy. Really messy. You vomit. You have stomach pains. There's bleeding and diarrhea. Along with that comes headaches, confusion, and drowsiness. But the real problem with actual arsenic poisoning is that it takes 30 minutes or more to show signs and symptoms. And when you do start showing symptoms, there's still plenty of time to seek help and get medical attention. There are even studies that suggest eating garlic can help cure arsenic poisoning, though you should still get medical help and maybe have your friends and acquaintances investigated. In any case, Actual death from arsenic poisoning can take anything from several hours to days. Plenty of time for Perot to use his little gray cells and catch the potential killer. Uh, assuming you haven't just outright told him who did it by then. Mostly what kills people in books and movies who have been the supposed victims of arsenic poisoning is plot. Still, that doesn't mean arsenic can't be used in clever ways that make sense and add to the plot. Arsenic has many uses outside of bumping off inconvenient relatives that can be turned to the budding mystery author's advantage for one of those really clever conundrums for which crime novels get remembered. For example, in 1775, Carl Wilhelm Scheele created a green color that was used to color paper products such as wallpaper. He made the color by combining sodium carbonate with arsenious oxide producing sodium arsenite which, when combined with copper sulfate, produces an insoluble green powder called copper arsenite that could be applied to paper, coloring it a greenish-yellow color 
that had previously been unattainable. It was swiftly used wherever such a color was desired, not just in paper products, but also in children's toys, wax candles, paints, and as a dye in cloth and linen. Imagine, if you will, a murder committed over the course of months and years simply by papering someone's walls with copper arsenite-colored wallpaper. You can achieve this in two ways, either by the flaking off and inhalation of small particles of the compound, or by dampening the paper slightly until mold grows, which would then metabolize the compound and release, as a byproduct, deadly arsine gas. And if you doubt the efficacy of such a method, Napoleon is believed to have died in just such a manner in the damp climate of St. Helena. Although, if we're honest, it was mostly because of stomach cancer brought on by arsenic's effects on the gastrointestinal tract. But we'll take it nonetheless. Speaking of ideas that come to us based on popular entertainment, here's one that hit us from two different directions. We were binge-watching old episodes of the original Johnny Quest cartoon, a science adventure show we grew up watching reruns of when we were but wee lads. In the very first episode, which originally aired in September of 1964, boy adventurer Johnny Quest travels with his dog Bandit, his father Dr. Benton Quest, and their bodyguard Race Bannon to a place in the Atlantic Ocean where ships have been disappearing. Not the Bermuda Triangle, mind you, but a place called the Sargasso Sea, where they discover a secret spy base hidden among the rotting hulks of century-old ships. Neat! But... This was not the first time we'd encountered the Sargasso Sea, no sir. We first encountered it many, many years ago in a book written in 1933 by Lester Dent. Called the Sargasso Ogre, the eighth book in the Doc Savage series featured many of the same elements. The Sargasso Sea, rotting old-timey ships, even the disappearance of a ship, though this one turned out to be a hijacked ocean liner. Along the way, Doc fights pirates with Amazons, and has a heck of a rollicking adventure. But we realized we didn't know exactly what the Sargasso Sea was. Sure, the book and the cartoon told us some things about it, like it was a place in the ocean where a particular kind of seaweed, the sargassum, collected in the ocean currents. But beyond that, we weren't really sure. So we went and looked. It turns out to be pretty interesting. One of its chief features, aside from the huge amounts of seaweed found there, is its incredible clarity and calmness. Under the floating mats of seaweed, it is deep blue, and visibility under the water can be up to 200 feet. And there is a history of ships being becalmed there, but this is more due to the latitude at which it exists rather than any particular effect of the Sargasso itself. It exists in an area of naturally calm water, which sometimes causes sailing ships to remain still for days on end. Called the Horse Latitudes, this is a subtropical band of latitude between 30 and 35 degrees in both the northern and southern hemisphere, in which the atmosphere is dominated by an area of high pressure which precludes the formation of clouds of precipitation and mixes highly variable winds with calm winds. This explains why, in part, so many stories feature shipwrecks covering very different centuries. But no actual shipwrecks exist in the real sea. It's more fun if there are old ships to explore, apparently. The reason the Sargasso Sea, which sits far off the coast of North America, exists is because of four ocean currents which form something called the North Atlantic Gyre. 
There are five such gyres in the world, and they all form because of circular currents which act as a sort of fence to keep it all together. In the Sargasso's case, it is bounded by the Gulf Stream to the west, the North Equatorial Current to the south, the Canary Current to the east, and the North Atlantic Current to the north. Together, they form a giant swirling mass of water, which dominates much of the Atlantic, with the Sargasso Sea at the center of it. Numerous accounts of the Sargasso Sea, or what some speculate as the Sargasso Sea, have existed for centuries. In fact, one of the earliest speculated acknowledgments of the Sargasso is thought to come from 4th century AD author Rufus Festus Avienus, when he describes an encounter with a portion of the Atlantic Ocean covered in seaweed by 5th century BC Carthaginian navigator Himilco, who may have encountered the eastern side of the 2,000 mile wide Sargasso. While there are no ships permanently stuck in the Sargasso, manned by the descendants of ancient Amazons or Romans, eking out a living on what they can take from other passing ships, there are creatures that call the place home for at least part of the year. Three varieties of eels, the European, American, and American conger eel, all use the site as a sort of hatchery for their young. The larvae hatch within the sea and shelter in the seaweed until they are mature enough to venture out into the wider ocean to their normal feeding grounds near Europe and America. And after a while, they venture back again to spawn and lay eggs. Loggerhead turtle babies are also believed to ride the currents to the area where they hide from predators until they are older. All of which makes the area pretty vital for these species, and not so great that it is also the location of the North Atlantic garbage patch where non-biodegradable plastic waste accumulates. Though scientists have also found plastic-eating bacteria in the area as well. But that's how it goes around here. We circle around and around looking for interesting topics to make episodes from. And occasionally, we have to clean up the accumulated collection of miscellaneous facts and information that's fallen into our gyre and make an episode out of it for you. We keep eyes and ears open for new and interesting topics in most of the things we do, and are always interested and grateful for any suggestions our listeners might have. Not everything works out into its own full episode, though, so we expect we'll keep running into sufficient bits and pieces for more of these lost episodes as we go along. If you've got a suggestion, send them on through. We're happy to receive them. We hope you enjoyed our foray into the research bin. Thanks for taking the time to listen. You know what to do if you want to hear more episodes. In addition to the aforementioned bonus episodes and Discord access, Patrons on Patreon get early episode access and transcripts. We just thought we'd mention that in case you were teetering on the edge of support and looking for someone to push you over. We're always happy to nudge. There are other methods of support as well. T-shirts and things, you know the drill. To find all the options, including some new options for supporters outside the United States, head over to our support page on our website at gmwordoftheweek.com. Once you're inside, click the yellow banner at the top, and it will take you right where you need to go to pick whatever works best for you. And thanks in advance for checking it out. It's much appreciated. Today's episode was researched, written, and produced by Brian Casey, a man with more words he doesn't know than ones he does. 
Music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. I'm always trolling for trivia.